Welcome to Lakeville. I'm producer Eric Sagan. Support for Lakeville comes from two places. Sponsors we genuinely love, and people just like you. If you'd like to help us keep the lights on in Lakeville, you can find our Patreon at patreon.com slash Podcast. Again, that's patreon.com slash Podcast. Support for the podcast also comes from Elses. Elses is now welcoming you inside for good drinks, good food, and good conversation in the heart of the Plateau Montréal. Also sponsoring the podcast is Good Mix. Good Mix includes a wide range of prebiotic fiber, which promotes microbial diversity in the gut flora. You can get 15% off your next purchase of Good Mix at Amazon and at goodmixfoods.com by using the code LIKEFILL when you check out online. You can find links to our sponsors at our website, www.likefillpodcast.com. Without further ado, Here's our host, John Faithful Hamer, introducing today's episode. Welcome to the Likeville Podcast. This is John Faithful Hamer. Today, I have the great honor of talking to Tula Tremonis about her new book, We the Others, Allophones, Immigrants, and Belonging in Canada. Welcome, Tula. Hi, John. Thank you for having me. So this is uh, a fantastic book, as I mentioned before we started recording. This is so good. I'm assigning it to one of my classes next semester. It's fantastic. So what inspired you to write this book? Honestly, very personal reasons to begin with. Uh, I had lost my dad about eight years ago, almost eight years ago. And I was mourning him. I was thinking about him. I was thinking about his life. You know, very typical first-generation Greek immigrant. And um, at the same time, I'd say... Anti, this anti-immigrant rhetoric was kind of ramping up. I could hear it around me. I could see it here in Quebec manifesting. The CEQ was coming into power. Um, and part of their platform, a huge part of their platform, was how they were going to reduce immigration. And people were um, latching on to that. And uh, this anti-immigrant sentiment was kind of not just happening here, but you could hear it across across the country, around the world, with Trump being elected. Um, and I guess the combination of those two things, the personal plus what I was seeing on the political front, was um, the catalyst for me to start sitting down and, you know, putting thoughts to paper. Yeah. I There's a lot of things I like about this book, but I think one of them that that really sort of shines out for me is that it's such a big-hearted book. Like, mm. it's a, an act of empathy, and you actually rather than just doing like the lip service of that, you actually demonstrate it. And like one of the most beautiful passages, for instance, in the book that I loved was where you go, you know, the typical kind of what Americans go to Ellis Island to see like where their immigrant forebears like landed <clears throat> and went through the immigration process. You go to Halifax to where your parents, you know, landed when they came from Greece to Canada. But while you're there, you also have this like incredibly. I've, I'm actually going to read it uh, for our listeners because it's just it's really fantastic. Where you go and you you look at you know where all the Acadians were exported and were forcibly you know it was ethnic cleansing on the part of the, the British Grand Troops. Yeah. yeah, and you go there and there's this kind of you're while you're there kind of putting in touch with your roots, your Greek roots, and stuff like that. You're also empathizing with the pain and the historical trauma of 
French Canadians who experience this trauma. And then you you just do that again and again where and you talk about um, you know the various kinds of things that Muslim Canadians have dealt with and indigenous and so it just is in many ways not by like your your rhetoric or your you know, ideology or something like that by but by demonstrated like what you're doing you're showing that you don't have to be limited you don't have to be like just one thing like you're saying like I can love my Greek heritage and I can love uh, French and I can love English and you have this great line you're like if I had three kids would you insist that I have a favorite yeah like would that you know no you can love them mm-hmm. equally and you know in different ways yeah thank you for saying that um I, I don't know if I was doing it consciously or unconsciously, but it it is the kind of way that I like to live my life. I do feel that if I was going to write a book about othering and how othering is counterproductive to social cohesion and belonging and working together <clears throat> and social peace, um, it would be hypocritical of me to just kind of focus on one facet of my my being, my identity, because all of those are, are aspects of my identity. You know, the, all all those layers are part of who I am and um, and that define me. So it was important to me. And it's not something I do it like strategically. It's, it's, it's how I like to live my life. And to me, when I was in Halifax, like the example that you use, it, it felt very normal for me to be there to kind of honor my parents and, and be at Pier 21 and walk the floor that my parents had walked, you know, and it was a very moving experience for me for, me, for sure. Um, but at the same time, because I am endlessly fascinated by history and how how humans seem to never be able to learn from their mistakes, it's 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 frustrating. Um, we also, you know, while I was there with my friends, and and my friend, uh, the friend that I was visiting, is a professor at Acadia University, and we were able to kind of you know do a little bit of the touring on the island and and see certain things. I really wanted to go there. I really wanted to see it. And it was very, it was a very moving experience for me to be there, uh, to be again at that spot where innocent people, you know, innocent people, innocent children—so many of them were children—were, were, you know, exiled and and sent off for for nothing other than not having the right, you know, um, air quotes here, um, the right allegiances, you know, the right speaking the right language, the right religion, the right uh, side of whatever was going on in politics at the time. And 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 this seems to be repeated time and time again, you know. Yeah. Um, oh, it's happened all over the world. I mean, right now in France the far right is talking about how at some point there's going to be forced expulsions of, you know, the Muslims from France. They have to that we can't trust these people as neighbors. We can't trust these people. And it's, you know, it's happened many, many times. They're the Romans forcibly um, expelled lots of Jews from you know areas and put them in the diaspora. Uh, Spain kicked out the Jews and the Muslims. Yeah, and, it's happened and, many and, times. And, and so. you can do it. You can do it without necessarily doing it in a direct kind of like saying you're, there's an expulsion taking place. You can indirectly be doing the same thing, like the way that we're treating refugees right now or the way that we're making it almost impossible or extremely dangerous for migrants to be trying to access other countries. That is a deliberate choice by countries. You know, By making it this unsafe, they are willing to say, um, I'm okay with an X number of people dying on practically a daily basis 
you know, capsizing in these shitty boats that, you know, can't possibly make it in rough waters where children and women and, and, and men are trying to cross to, to a safer country um, and just looking the other way. So in a way, you know, we have countries and leaders doing the exact same thing, but indirectly and saying, well, we have nothing to do with it necessarily. But yeah. you do. But you do. Yeah. And it's it's sad because where I, where I teach, it's, you know, a lot of my students are children of recent immigrants to Canada. And what I hear from them semester after semester after semester is I don't feel welcome here at all. And I'm going to leave as soon as I can. Because I don't, and the sad thing is, these are students who are perfectly trilingual. They are perfect in French, perfect in English, and they speak another language, at least one other language. Sometimes, you know, like two or three more languages. And these are future entrepreneurs, future, these are people who are really going to do interesting things in whatever society they're in. And we can't afford to lose them because, as you say in your book, we have a a very, very low birth rate. It's the lowest birth rate in all of North America, Quebec. It's one of the lowest birth rates in the industrialized world. Yeah. I'm not sure if it's actually the lowest right now. I think we've kind of rebounded a little bit. But the point remains that it's extremely like low. We need immigrants more than they need oh, us. Oh, yes, yes. And the fact that we're actually having these nonstop conversations about how to let them in and how many to let in and what good they are to us and treating people like numbers when we so desperately need immigration to replenish, you know, the labor market and the fact that we need people. And and, and you you talk to small business owners and they are desperate for people. They are desperate. We see the effects all around us of, you know, um, businesses not being able to operate uh, full hours or uh, having to close businesses are closing or I don't know what the stats were. I can't remember the number, but we're losing the company. You know, the, the country is losing like and, and Quebec is losing in the millions or maybe even billions of dollars in in lost productivity because we don't have access to the people that we need right now. Um, and we're an aging society. We're aging drastically. You know, I believe more people, or if it's not right now, it will soon be happening, where more people are actually exiting the job market than they are entering. Um, we have an aging population. And if we want to retain the services and that social safety net that we're so proud of, you know, and free daycare or affordable daycare and, um, you know, accessible health care and all these things that we're so proud of here, well, you need taxpayers. You need people that will actually replenish that population and and contribute in their way and 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 pay you know taxes and contribute to maintaining all of this. Mm-hmm. No, absolutely. And I, I I try and bring this up with my with my students because I have some students that are also from uh, John Abbott is, is weird in the English Sejeps that it has the highest percentage of. Uh, francophone students and that's oh, one really? of the things the caq you know okay. of course he's from saint Anne de bellevue right by john abbott and he he really wants to stop that from happening but a lot of them are in the police tech program and stuff like that and they're from the regions they're from like completely white homogeneous you know francophone towns and they're studying at john abbott and they just like they're like where did all these people come from and they're very kind of and i try to explain to them it's actually in the interests of the french nation to have immigrants to have more because, you know, as you mentioned in your book, it actually affects how many seats you get in the federal system. Mm -hmm. If your population declines vis-a-vis the rest of Canada, you actually get less 
representation yeah. over time. And and usually when you bring that up, some people, like hardcore separatists, will say, well, that's why the solution, because always the solution, uh, you know, uh, is always, well, we, we become an independent country and then we don't need to worry about what our demographic weight is necessarily within Canada. But you can do that. I mean, uh, you know, I believe in the democratic process. If there are not enough people that will vote for um, independence, go for it, you know, uh, convince people to do it. So far, it hasn't been the case. And there just aren't enough people that have been willing to vote for Quebec independence to make it happen so far. And with the demographics changing, I don't necessarily see that happening. But even if it were to happen tomorrow, that still doesn't change the fact that an independent Quebec would still have the very same issues with an aging population and a desperate need for immigration. Yeah, um, almost more so, actually. Yes. Because they wouldn't have the the sort of the ballast and the corrective of having the federal state to kick in dollars when you're short. Right? Very they true. wouldn't have that. It would be, it'd be a true. real mess. Mm-hmm. I, I actually, I, I, you don't mention it in your book, but I was, I was curious. You know, how did, what was your, because I know for me growing up here in Montreal as an Anglophone, I was actually, I actually voted yes in the referendum. Mm-hmm. I was one of those kind of lefty, progressive Anglophones that thought that in independent Quebec, you know, everything else was moving in this like super neoliberal direction. And I thought, okay, Quebec is going to be like like a nice little Sweden in the middle of North America. It's going to mm-hmm. be a social democracy in a sea of like Reaganism and Maroonie and right. Thatcherism and all this stuff. And uh, I remember, you know, and you you t- you sort of say, hey, we shouldn't be too hard on the money and the ethnic vote <laughs> comment and stuff like that. But I remember being with like Albert Nuremberg right. and a bunch of people and we were all at a watch party. And we had all, we were like all like Anglophones who had voted yes. And I remember us what a just nice slap in the fucking puke. What like, a slap in the felt, face, oh right? My yeah. God. Like just felt like, mm. like, just like punched in the stomach. Yeah. Like absolutely. It was so, it was like, you know, it was like if somebody, if you're in love with somebody and yeah. people have been telling you, ah, he's a total asshole. He's, he shouldn't judge. <laughs> and you're like, no, you don't know him. He's really great. And then he does something, you're like, oh, fuck, they were all right. You know, mm. like I, I was, people had been telling me, this is just ethnic nationalism. This is there's a ugly underbelly to this movement, and I had uh, always sort of said, no, that's not true. Lavec is like a real you know, social democrat, and he says anybody who lives in Quebec is Quebecois and all this stuff, and uh, it just seemed like a real. And now, you know, now I think, although I my allegiance to Quebec is much much stronger than my allegiance to Canada, I can't support. Uh, separation now because I just don't think it's it would produce a country that would be very nice to live in. Yeah, um, I don't even where to be, I even begin to comment on that. Uh, first of all, I, I, I when it comes to Parizeau's comments, I try I, I tried I wrote that piece because uh, the night that he died, I was seeing a lot of vitriol, a lot of hate online, and it really bugged me because I I do believe that you can't define a person's career and a legacy by that one moment uh, where he was clearly distraught, clearly probably uh, under the influence of alcohol. Um, Not that that should be an excuse of any kind, but I didn't want to limit his legacy to just that. But I'm not excusing that comment. I think it was a vile comment. I think it was a destructive comment, mostly for his party, because there were a lot of people that said that, as you said, were supportive of the movement. And I've spoken to a lot of allophones who had the exact same experience, feeling completely betrayed, completely betrayed by the party and by those comments because all of a sudden this guy comes on who is supposed to be 
the premier for, of all Quebecers who is putting a target on, you know, ethnics, anybody who's ethnic and what was it? Ethnic and the, and the, and the money, and the, and the which money. was just code for Jews. Basically. Yeah. Which was just a very <laughs> I mean, like, vile comment on every, in any possible way. There's nothing to excuse, you know, that, that, that was a terrible comment to make. Um, there are a lot of Francophones that I know that are hardcore and, you know, uh, separatists who want an independent Quebec, who um, I, I don't consider by any means racist or xenophobic or, um, you know, people that I would happily form a country with, put it that way. Mm-hmm. Uh, unfortunately, the movement, the way, and I feel the same way as you do. I'm I'm an allophone who predominantly works and lives in English, uh, who feels much a much stronger attachment to Quebec than I do to the rest of Canada. To me, the rest of Canada is kind of like, yeah, it's the rest of Canada. It's nice. It's there. Uh, I don't dislike it, but I don't have like a an emotional attachment to it. To me, Quebec is home. Me too. And 100%. I, and I think that there's a large swath of francophones in in Quebec who completely are are completely unable to understand that to understand or refuse to believe it you know yeah. uh, i have arguments on a daily basis with people who will continue will constantly tell me i'm not a real quebecer i'm not a real quebecer because i communicate in english most of the time or because my last name is germonis and it's clearly not french um so I'm kind of feel the same way. Like I don't, I'm not a hardcore federalist by any means, but I've always felt like, okay, prove to me that, that Quebec independence has something better to offer to me. And so far, and especially with the way identity politics and this ethnic nationalism that is this panicky ethnic nationalism that is kind of emerging in the last few years. And the CEQ has kind of nourished as well. um, I'm, I'm definitely not convinced because it's shown me, especially now with Bill 96 and Bill, especially Bill 21, that we're talking about a percentage of the population that feels very comfortable with violating basic human rights. And these are human rights that are, are, are protected by the Charter. And what guarantee would minorities have in an independent Quebec that these rights would be you know, protected. Yeah, not much, not much. There's a passage from your book that just, I thought it was just uh, wonderful, uh, just to what you were just saying. Um, The boring, uneventful reality that most pundits won't bother writing about is that for the most part, we all get along just fine. Quebec is a wonderful place to live and people of all linguistic backgrounds treat each other with respect, affection, and kindness. Don't let inflammatory headlines and Twitter fights fool you. A simple walk around the neighborhood will remind you otherwise. This is a beautiful place to call home. And then, uh, you know, where's the other one? You say, like, yeah, I wish, like, you're talking about how I wish that, um, you know, Quebecers realized how, oh, yeah, here. Uh, Does speaking English diminish my ability to speak Greek or love French? Does my love of Greece alter in any possible way my affinity for Quebec? Does celebrating Quebec's Fête Nationale stop me from celebrating Greek Independence Day or Canada Day? If I had three kids, would people insist I'd choose one as my favorite? What I continue to find surprising is that some Francophones stubbornly refuse to believe that non-Francophones want to protect French too. I wish Quebec Francophones understood how much this language they love is loved by us too. Hallelujah. I mean, like, that's such, like, it's great writing, but it's, it's such a true sentiment. Like, I, I find 
uh, very often that there's this shock that somebody who grew up here who's not Francophone would feel that they are first and foremost a Quebecer and that they love the French language and they love being here. Uh, they they think that everybody just wants to leave right away. When in fact, the people who I see who want to leave are not people like us. It's younger generation that we need to stay mm. who are, you know... Have less of an attachment. Less of an attachment. And they feel just completely alienated yeah. um, from Quebec culture, from Quebec media. They find it's like all the same, like 10 people all the time. And, and, and instead of denying this or taking offense to this, what is in Quebec's best interest is to really look at this phenomenon to see why are people feeling alienated? Why do they feel that they can't identify as being a Quebecer? Why do they feel the need to like potentially leave because they don't feel welcomed or appreciated or valued here? This is what they need to be looking at, right? Uh, uh, Quebec as a whole, politicians, when I say they, I mean politicians or pundits or people who are... Um, you know, whatever, creating the political strategy for the years to come, instead of taking offense and saying, oh, well, these kids are Quebec bashing or people who say they don't feel welcome. Oh, but we're not really trying to be um, part of the the we here or the us. Like, take a good hard look and listen to these people. Listen, like actually take the time to listen to them and understand why it is that they feel this way. And I try to explain a little bit in the book uh, in many different ways, why that happens, you know, like if you're, uh, because social cohesion comes together from many different ways. Like I said, it's not about rah, 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 you know, uh, a flag waving and this kind of manufactured over the top nationalism that I've never been a, fa- a fan of anyway, uh, you know, that kind of state appointed nationalism or, oh, we're going to create, I don't know, uh, uh, more culture days or, or we'll teach uh, a, le- uh, a t- lesson on uh, Quebec culture. Uh, these are all great, but uh, how you make people belong and how you make them feel a part of the whole, it, it comes from very mundane, very ordinary, organic, daily things, right? And it's about making pe- people feel welcome, you know? And when you have, like I mentioned in the book, if you're a young person who is going to school, but your mother wears the hijab and you've been hearing nothing but shit talk for the past four or five years about women who wear the hijab and how indoctrinated they are or how they're religious zealots. And this is just your mom they're talking about, right? Or your grandmother. How are you supposed, and it doesn't matter if the young girl is wearing the hijab or not, you're attacking her culture. You're attacking her her family. Um, That hurts and that affects you in a way that I think politicians and pundits we're trying to score political points right now on the backs of uh, marginalized communities and minority religious minorities do not understand how how it affects these people and how it affects like i'll give you an example a recent example with you know immigration minister uh, uh, mr boulet who who had i can't even believe that this is an immigration I minister know. that was saying making these comments but when i as the daughter of immigrants who busted their butts working here. I'm sorry, but I'm just going to be frank. You know, my, my parents knew nothing but hard labor their entire lives, worked extremely hard. Um, and to hear, and you know, my parents both had a very minimal education, both had like, you know, fourth, fifth degree education, but my mother speaks French. She speaks English. It's not great. It's probably not grammatically correct, but she speaks to everyone and she tries really hard to communicate with people. So when you hear... 
um, your immigration minister say something this hurtful and this inaccurate and this dangerous, really, it's dangerous for social cohesion, um, to say that immigrants don't integrate and don't adapt your values and don't speak French and don't work. Um, oh, he referred to the – like they're parasites. They're actually like – Vile, yeah. vile. Like to, to make these comments – um, I don't think people understand. And then people would come and say, oh, yeah, but you know what? It's a strategy because they're trying to win and they're trying to win. Uh, they're, they're just tr- kind of really pushing these buttons because they want to win. And I'm like, first of all, the CEQ, we already knew going in that they had a 99% chance of winning. So I don't know exactly why you needed to make these comments to what? To make it 100%, you know? Uh, and on the other hand, I don't understand why they would say something this damaging, because it affects how people perceive other people. Because someone who lives, let's say, in the region or doesn't have daily contact with immigrant communities and doesn't know any better necessarily, this is this is how this is what they will think of immigrants, right? This is yeah. what they will think. They'll think in Montreal, immigrants don't adapt, aren't interested in learning French, don't integrate, are destroying the city. You know, I hear comments on a daily basis going, ah, Montréal est perdu, Montréal est perdu, like as if it's like this crime riddled, you know. And Montreal is one of the nicest cities to, to, to live so in, right? Safe. It's a fantastic. Yeah. I've never, ever in my entire life felt unsafe in the city as a woman, as a, you know, as a woman walking at all hours. I have to say, it is probably one of the safest cities I've ever lived in. Mm-hmm. Um, um, and to to make these comments, these unfounded, inaccurate, dangerous comments, and for these comments to be coming from your own immigration minister, who was voted and you know elected, no problem. Like there was zero zero consequences. What does that say about us? What does that say about the society? And what does it say about the majority of francophones who are willing to uh, forgive these comments? Yeah. So it's normal that people are are feeling unwelcome and unsure about whether they want to be here and whether they truly feel that they're being valued for what they contribute. Because make no mistake, immigrants, first generation, second generation, third generation, they contribute immensely. Oh, massive. One of the things in your book that I thought my students would really, a lot of them would really respond to is where, very kind of touching actually, like where you talk about how your parents worked so hard and you were like a latchkey kid, yeah. and you had lots Very of responsibility. So. You're taking care of your little sister. Your brother's getting a dollar for yep. just not mugging you. I was fucking <laughs> hilarious. You're like, I came by my feminism early. Hell yeah! Uh, but, the, uh, but you're talking about how, like, you know, the because uh, that's what I hear from like immigrant kids all the time. My parents are running a depth. They're yeah. running a store. They're running this. They're doing that, and they work like seventy, eighty hours a week. We have to do our own laundry. We have to cook our own meals. We have to do everything. And we and this is a massive sacrifice that they've they've left. They've gone way out of their comfort zone to come to a new place where they everything's kind of new, new languages, and they're working like crazy. Yeah, and to try and give us a better life, and then to hear the immigration minister and other people like saying that these are parasites, that these are lazy people yeah. who are. So, what are you talking about? Like these are, you know, and you mentioned that wonderful, like uh, where they had like top 10, like entrepreneurs in Quebec and they're all like kind of white Francophone dudes. And yet 
if you look at the stats at who actually is most small businesses and most a lot of it's entrepreneurs. overwhelmingly yeah. it's overwhelmingly like and it's it's a combination of different Quebec. things right it's a combination of different things a lot of people because a lot of economic immigra- migration does take place so a lot of people will come with x amount of money to invest and they'll come here and that's what they'll do it's easier for them to kickstart their life here because they don't have to deal with um having to convince people that oh having not being able to speak the language perfectly or n- having an accent doesn't make you less of a person or less capable which happens whether we like it or not there is and i i i quote a few studies there showing how um systemic racism seeps into the hiring process and different things so um for Can a variety just of talk reasons a little bit about about that whether you hire somebody named Matthew or Samir, right? The way I mean, they send the yeah. I mean, there Can are a lot of for- well. There were just a few, not to get into the details, but there were a few studies that I do quote showing um, very, you know, very clearly uh, showing and proving that systemic racism very much uh, exists when it comes to the hiring process. And this is how systemic racism exists, right? And, and that's why it's hard for a lot of people to recognize it or to even acknowledge it because if it doesn't affect you, and that's usually how it works, right? The same thing, we're having the same argument um, discussions right now with racial profiling um, and the police and certain things. If it doesn't affect you, it's very easy to dismiss it. So it's very, I see with racial profiling, people will say and will comment, um, oh yeah, but they must have done something, you know? Oh, if you're getting stopped, you know, 10, de- t- 10 times in the last two months, then clearly you're a shitty driver or you must have done something to catch the eye of a police officer. Because your average law-abiding white person who has whether they realize it or not, is privileged because there is a privilege attached to that, um, has never come across or has never had to deal with racial profiling, doesn't want to believe that they're privileged, doesn't want to believe that the police officers that are entrusted with protecting us and taking, you know, making sure that and the peace and all that are actually capable of um, – looking at someone, a minority, a visible minority, and treating them differently. They don't want to believe that. I think it's very comforting for them to believe that. And if you haven't experienced it, if you haven't lived it, I think it's very easy to kind of go on about your life not believing it happens. I can see that. I can see how an average, you know, decent human being who really has had zero experience with racial profiling or systemic racism in the hiring process because – John comes along and John is like, you know, a very ordinary, typical name that isn't associated with any preconceived notions about anything. But whether we we believe it or whether we acknowledge it or not, we do have preconceived notions and we have these kind of deeply embedded um, ideas of what a certain name or let's say a Muslim name or a foreign sounding name is attached to or someone who comes in with an accent. There have been tons of studies that have proven that concretely. Like we, sh- we shouldn't even be debating it. We know this exists. But there's a reticence to, ad- to admit that this happens, you know, mm-hmm. that this takes place. Uh, and I think the first step to kind of tackling this is to acknowledge it, to say, you know what, I, I could potentially have a bias here and I'm not – I wasn't aware that I had it. But it's I, I need to acknowledge that it could possibly – impact my decision making and that's okay because i think we all like no one's perfect it's okay to say the way i was raised maybe potentially put me in a position where i had the privilege of not having to deal with certain things mm-hmm. no, it doesn't make you a lesser absolutely. person i think i think there's a couple of sort of stages in human development 
not everybody makes all of them, unfortunately, but there's sort of a like an infantile stage where you're just like completely narcissistic and it's all about you and your needs and you don't really care about anybody else. And you're sort of in your own world. And then gradually as your kid, you get older, you realize that other people exist and you start sort of trying to trying to like you know, to do the golden rule. I, I love how you brought up the platinum mm. rule. I do that mm. in my ethics class all the time. But like, yeah. so the golden rule, you try and treat other people uh, as you would be treated yourself. But that still is kind of just an expanded narcissism because mm. you're always taking yourself as the model and you're assuming everybody else is sort of like a close rough approximation. Operating of what, like of you, you or thinking right? like you, yeah. And then the, the leap after that, which is the world becomes so much more interesting when you'd make that leap, which is the leap that you do in this book like a lot, like that Acadian example, is to realize, actually, there's all these other people around me and they're just as deep and interesting and multi-layered as I am. And they've got their own shit going on and their own kind of like, and then trying to recognize that, you know, you're limited by your own perspectives and bias, but we have this beautiful thing called language. And so you can talk to people and ask them and listen to them. And then you can learn all this new shit like from them. (laughs) And then it's like, whoa. And that because, but you know, I think that's, it's a difficult leap to make. And it's something that I I don't even think I really, I'm embarrassed to say this, but I'm like 48. I don't think I really made that leap um, until my thirties, mid thirties. I think I still in my in my friendships and my marriage and my I I was still sort of assuming that the way I saw things was more or less how other people that my my sort of view on things that other people were more or less rough rough approximations and then when you when you suddenly break through that and you realize no they're like really not yeah, there are um, a million different ways of seeing the world and and yeah. different ways of living you know your life and. Um, yeah, I, you know, uh, but I, it makes I, you feel small, and I don't think people want to feel small. I, I, it I can you know, maybe, maybe. I mean, yeah, perhaps. I don't know. I, I, I suppose nationalism, like all forms of nationalism, and this exceptionalism that a lot of countries have and a lot of communities have, is a way of feeling like. And I see it in the Greek community too. Sometimes, you know, it's a sense of self preservation where you need, right? yeah, it's Greek. <laughs> it's, it, it absolutely exists. Let me, let me tell you, it exists, and I understand where it's coming from because I think it's a very basic human kind of need to. Um, to feel special, to feel that what you have and what you were raised around is exceptional and is special and is and it can be special and it can be exceptional, it can be beautiful and it can be worth preserving, but that doesn't make it any better than anybody else's reality or experience or lived experience or the way that they were raised. And I think it's super important to remember that. And I don't know if it's just part of my personality that I always look for that or if it's the way that I was raised that I was – like I say, the fact that I was raised a little bit left to my own devices as a latchkey kid and with my parents struggling as immigrants, um, as I say in the book, in a world that didn't necessarily cater to them in any way, right? Because when you're an Im- immigrant, you're the one who has to work really – like there will be integ- an integration process and if you're lucky, you'll come across people or a government that is willing to accommodate you and help you along the way and integrate you. Um, but at the end of the day, you're navigating a world – 
and culture around you and languages around you. And no one is necessary. Everyone is going about their business, uh, dealing with their own issues. And no one is going to bend over backwards to accommodate you, right, to cater to your needs. You have to figure it out. And I think seeing my parents navigate it, figure it out, struggling through it, um, it made me extremely empathetic to that experience. Uh, I And I'm, I'm very aware of, you know, I'm a second generation, educated, privileged in many, many respects. And it's my way kind of of paying it forward, I guess, because I'm very aware that the immigration process, I mean, it changes depending on what your education level is, what your finances are, how you come to a new country, right? I mean, someone can immigrate and be in a very privileged position and someone can immigrate through the processes, let's say, as, as a migrant, as a refugee, having absolutely nothing. Those are two very different experiences. But the immigration, the waves after waves of immigration are very similar. The process is similar of how you come to a new place and oh, how even, you try to integrate. Even down to, to the details. Yeah. Like, there's a detail where you talk about your mother not wanting to take public transportation mm-hmm. from park and where was going it? down yeah. close to yeah. blurry she, going down to her mm-hmm. job and so she got uh, she, she wasn't dressing you know in enough clothes she was wearing these stylish like white jackets and stuff like that and she got pneumonia mm-hmm. right that exact detail happened to the mother of one of my students she told me about Phil- filipina student yeah. she said that her mother also uh, walked like some crazy amount like an hour and 20 minutes to work to and from she didn't take the public transportation because it was too complicated and her language skills were yeah. not there. And she also got pneumonia. It's it's incredible, like right down to like little granular details in your book, how much it mirrors like a broader and, immigrant and we're talking, experience. And we're talking 50, they're separated. These two experiences are separated by 50 years. Yes. And it's a completely, that's one of the things that I've, I've been getting a lot of messages about this book. And, and they're so gratifying to me because this is why I wrote it, right? I wrote it for kids of immigrants and, 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 and the, to, to kind of speak to the, to the frustration of a lot of these issues. And I knew that it would resonate with a lot of people, but what I'm loving is I'm getting a lot of, uh, messages from people who are, you know, not Greek, just uh, uh, different backgrounds, completely different backgrounds from mine and saying, you know, my parents' immigrant experience or my own immigrant experiences was nothing like yours, but it was everything like yours. So it, because the immigrant experience doesn't change, you know, the culture shock, the wanting to belong, the resistance of the people who are already there, not necessarily accepting you as you are. Um, the conditions, this expectation of gratitude that can be toxic, all of these things, these elements, they don't change from generation to generation or from immigrant group to immigrant group. It's all the same. Yeah. I, I learned a lot from your book, uh, which is, I, I was, that was delightful. I mean, I thought, I thought I was going to really enjoy the book, but I thought I was going to enjoy like just your, your voice and your perspective and your argument. But I imagined that the the, the material you would go over would be familiar terrain, but there was like a bunch of things in there that I didn't know. And then I was kind of embarrassed that I didn't know, but like, I didn't know that Canada could have had our own fucking Hawaii. Like <laughs> we could have had like a Caribbean. Yeah. Uh, we could have had Jamaica yeah. or Bahamas or Bermuda. It could have been like part of I mean, it's fine Canada. that we didn't because a lot of the issues there itself were like very, um, even the desire was kind of colonial based and, you know. Uh, but still, uh, we could have had our own Hawaii. Yes, yeah. But <laughs> you're, so you're talking about, I, I, I had a lot of, well, pleasure, maybe not pleasure, but I really enjoyed writing the chapter on immigration in Canada. I really wanted to include it. I wanted to make sure that 
I devoted a good amount of time um, showing to the reader that, um, first of all, a lot of the issues that I'm discussing are not unique to Quebec because I didn't want people to think that I was just focusing on Quebec or this was Quebec bashing or I'm just, you know, attacking Quebec. I happen to live in Quebec, so of course my book is going to be focused on I get like lots of love for Quebec Yeah, here. thank you. I hope it's, that people... It really shines through. Yes, I think so too. I mean, I think... I think someone would be dishonest if they read this book and 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 said that I'm Quebec bashing or that I don't love Quebec. I think they would be very disingenuous to to to, to claim that because I think it does shine through. Completely, I, I very much 100%. am a Quebecer and a Montrealer, and I I love this place. Um, but I really wanted to make it clear to the reader that you know anti immigration anti immigration sentiment is definitely not unique to the here and now and. We have a long history of it, too, in Canada and around the world. I mean, this book could have been a lot longer. You know, editors moved in and we had to slash here and there. But I was talking a lot about the U.S. and about the around the world and about refugees. And uh, it was important to me to kind of document it, you know, and to educate people, too, because there's a you're, you shouldn't be ashamed that you don't know it because a lot of it is just not taught in schools. Right. We're not taught these essential things. About mm-hmm. how immigrants the were fact treated. That Canada could have had a Caribbean province. <laughs> you're still, you're still I, stuck on I'm that. just, you you're know, in the middle of that. the winter, to be able to go to the Caribbean and still be in Canada, <laughs> that would but be forget about, amazing. Forget about the Caribbean island. There are tons of Canadians uh, and Quebecers that don't know about internment camps and don't know about how Chinese immigrants were treated here and about, you know, how Italians were treated when they came here. Because we have this kind of comforting idea that. Uh, Immigrants now are being treated suspiciously because they're a different kind of immigrant. Oh, these new immigrants are different from the ones in the past. They are, they don't integrate as well and they come from different cultures and the religion is strange and it's different from the majority. But the reality is, and that's why I focus so much on that chapter, the reality is we treated every single immigrant group in the exact same way, with suspicion, with weariness, with like um, a real reticence to accept them. You know, we made it difficult for them. And a lot of it was legislation, you know, based. It wasn't just individuals acting this way. It was our own country um, and the government at the time Mm -hmm. that had zero issues with making it extremely difficult for certain immigrants to move We had had a historian on the podcast a number of years ago who wrote a book uh, all about kind of slavery in New France, and he could not find a publisher for it in here in, here in Quebec. It finally, and he was like denied tenure um, at UCAM, basically on the street. They absolutely hated this book. He had all the receipts. He had all the documents of how many slave African slaves and indigenous slaves there were. In well, there Montreal, have been books Croydia, written since, Quebec. so they're definitely out there. Yeah, and there and are books. He ended up like having to move to the University of Ottawa and do the rest of his career. There's quite there. a few books that have been written since yeah. then, like Michel Trudeau so, wrote. And, there's yeah, so Kudel, much sorry. resistance yeah. to it. it. There's so much resistance to it. Like, well, there's this I, narrative that we keep kind of, you know, there's this official narrative that keeps kind of drummed and and we constantly hear over and over. And the thing is that, and this narrative of, you know, um, Francophones being a minority and, 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 um, after after they lost the war, how they were treated and how a francophone minority the francophone minority has been treated with disdain and across Canada, francophones are still tr- not treated as 
equally or as fairly. You know, we're, we keep talking about how we're an officially bilingual country, but the reality is Francophones in the rest of the country have a lot of issues and a lot of challenges to face, you know, and their rights are often not respected. I have a lot of empathy for Francophones outside of, uh, outside of Quebec because they are doing their best, you know, to maintain their culture and their language as well, just like every other minority out there. Um, but uh, what was my what was the point I was trying to make? But the, the, uh, but the official the narrative, narrative. But the narrative, right? yeah. yeah, that's what I was trying to it's make. It's like the we point are is, always the victims and we can't possibly be victimizers because but, we but are But that's it. It doesn't forever. play with this whole official kind of narrative where one aspect of this identity is always – you know, harped on, like, we're the victims, we're this, we were treated. This can all be true. This can all be true, or elements of it can be true, where, you know, Francophones had to deal with a lot um, trying to maintain their language. And there was, at some point, a directive for assimilation. Not the case today. I don't feel, I feel like we can talk about how the government is, the the federal government sometimes doesn't um, uh, do as much to maintain the French factor in, in the rest of Canada and needs to step up, you know, and they've had, they've made some strides in the sense that they've been trying to um, increase the number of French immigration, you know, the French immigration, even though they've kind of, that hasn't really worked as well as it should be because of the pandemic. And I'm hoping that those numbers will start going up. I believe they have. Um, uh, so there, there are efforts, but I don't believe that there's an actual, uh, any active effort to assimilate francophones you know i don't believe that's the case i believe the federal gov- government is is trying to to maintain the french i honestly I, I wish we lived in a truly bilingual country where everyone was bilingual and everyone was actively trying to be bilingual i think would alleviate a lot of the tension and i think it would benefit everyone immensely you know why not i mean other countries have managed to do it in europe i don't understand why we're wasting so much valuable time just fighting over this nonsense and language issues when in reality, we're lucky to have, you know, these two languages and we should be uh, trying to t- – making more efforts to teach them. And yeah, I think if you would have asked me, like, if that was true 25 years ago when I was 23, I would have said, like, yeah, absolutely, I agree with you, Tua. But now – and I think your book kind of makes this point anyway – is that now I think there's, there's a, a strong kind of ethnic nationalist uh, – kind of block in, Here, in Quebec yeah. that that would not be enough. It wouldn't yeah. be enough the for the country to be the, yeah. like bilingual because they're not okay with people being perfectly bilingual. It's like they want you to actually not just speak French, they want you to be French. And well, what they mean by that is like be uh, Quebecois, erase all your speak uh, even if you're more comfortable speaking Italian or Arabic or you know Farsi at home, I th- they want you to speak French at home and right. to consume their cultural products, and they don't want you to be. I you think know, the average francophone, especially in Montreal, who you know francophones who are in daily contact with anglophones and allophones, I think the average francophone just wants to make sure and to ensure that the French language survives and thrives, and that people who live here operate in French, can speak French, can communicate in French, can work in French, that francophones can work in French and not necessarily requiring English. I think in some areas and industries that's never going to happen because in Montreal, you are, this is a very multicultural, polyglot city uh, where 
you have, you know, experts in IT and in certain industries that require the need for English, you know. So there will always be a demand for people who are bilingual and operate that way. So I think it's unrealistic to expect that of certain people. But I think the average Francophone just wants people to be able to speak French and communicate French. There is certainly that hardcore, you know, it's a small but very vocal minority. Mm-hmm. I don't think they're the majority. I think they're a small, vo- and they're very aging. vocal, very. Some of them are aging. There is still like some younger people, but um, a very panicky kind of angry, almost bitter uh, group of people who I feel are seeing. They're seeing the demographics change before their eyes. They're changing. It's inevitable. It's it's North America is changing. Canada is changing. You know, Toronto is supposed to be. Uh, majority non-white, I believe, by 2031, if I remember correctly. The yeah. latest statistics. Oh, like, like, way, Maybe like even 70, sooner. 71%. Maybe even sooner. Yeah, yeah I mean, the, the, the demographics are changing, and they're changing fast here as well. And I think there is that percentage of people who want, who have this, it's almost like nostalgia porn, you know? Like, they, they want this idea of what they thought Quebec was, and never really was, because... Quebec has never been just francophone, just yeah. white, just, you know, but they want this idea of what they would like Quebec to be, this homogeneous kind of all francophone, um, all white population to, to to remain or this is their vision, you know, and I'm when I talk about I'm thinking about people like Matsu Bokote and whatever, these yeah. people that are like very intent on, you know, and, and talk about immigration as the demographic drowning of francophones, which is absurd, you know, like it's literally... You're, you're talking about replacement theory at that point, you yeah. know, like these are dangerous, dangerous sentiments to be to, to be sharing. Um, the, for these people, you're right. For these people, it'll never be enough. The fact that I speak French is not enough for them because I'm sitting here having a conversation with you in English. Yeah. I'm working in English at home. I'm speaking like if I'm visiting my mom, I'm speaking in, uh, Greek with my mom. Um, so the fact that I can speak French, but I'm retaining all of these other facets of my identity and of my culture and of other languages is somehow a betrayal of what it is that they are asking of me. They – because – that's that's exactly it. They don't want integration. They're asking for assimilation. Yeah. And the fact that they are quoting stats and basing the 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 number, the percentage of francophones, or the, or the fact that they're claiming that French is dec- decreasing the French language, people who speak the French language is decreasing in Quebec because they're quoting statistics of uh, what people are speaking at home is. Is, is inaccurate and very dangerous as well because you're basically saying that people who speak another language at home, even though they speak French, are not true Francophones or are not true Quebecers. They're failing somehow to adhere to whatever, you know, this agreement that we've established here that you need to be able to speak French. It's not enough to just speak it. You need to be, yeah, you need to, to assimilate. You need to remove all other facets of your personality, uh, all uh, other languages. And it, it, that kind of assimilation, cultural assimilation or linguistic assimilation happens regardless. Like if you you speak to allophones or, you know, Spanish speaking, Greek speaking, I'm sure that like four, five, six, seven generations down the line, you will see that more of those people will be speaking f- French than they will probably be speaking Greek or Spanish. They lose, eventually they lose their language unless the community is fighting really hard to retain it. And I happen to be part of a community that is 
working really hard at making sure that their kids, you know, learn Greek. You know, you're sent to Greek school. You go to, you know, we have a lot of like great um, trilingual like Socrates where kids will go to Greek school and they emerge, you know, perfectly trilingual. Like these younger generations are amazing. They are perfectly trilingual, which Mm -hmm. to me is like – these are assets. This is an asset oh, to your culture. Yeah. It's, it's really, know? really useful. It's, it's, I mean, like my, my daughter, Annika, she, 20 year old, she speaks English, French, and Mandarin. She went to, wow. when you, you know, when you were going to Greek school on Saturday, she was going to Chinese school. And she did that every single, you know, Saturday for years and years since she was like a little girl. And she speaks, so she goes in the depth. You know, this six foot one yeah. blonde, blonde. <laughs> she's like, what? what? That's oh, she's like, but yeah, but, but and no. they're always like, you know, and shocked. And it's, they're shocked. And it's, you know, when she went to flight school, she has her pilot's license. She went through the, anyway, uh, the air cadets and stuff like that. When she was out, like in Shkutimi, like, you know, far out there, they were always like really surprised that she could speak like perfect French. Mm. Like, oh, I thought, you know, you Anglophones, like, yeah, there's are always that all, shock. Like, that you. She's like, no, I, I love it here. What are you talking about? Like, this is there's a my real, place. Yeah, there's a real resistance. I think that so many people, because they don't know Montreal's reality or they don't live here, or they just, or they themselves are guilty of being in a very insular, small kind of circle. Like, a lot of times, the, the people who accuse immigrants of being like in cultural ghettos are actually the ones guilty of doing that. They retain very uh, insular kind of lives where they're just interacting with other Francophones. I've seen that often and they don't necessarily have a lot of contact with um, allophones and and people of uh, various kind of diverse backgrounds. Like if my life on a daily basis includes a lot of diversity you know, and that's my Montreal reality. Um, and when I say diversity, I mean people from all kinds of immigrant backgrounds, francophones, anglophones, uh, tons of allophones, uh, all religious denominations, you know, like people with such diverse backgrounds. And to me, to me, that is like such a richness. And to know more, like I'll never apologize for knowing more than no- knowing less. Like knowing more is always going to be better than knowing less, you know. So I don't understand these conversations that we keep having. It's not... It's it's not knowing, you know, another language does not prevent me from being able to speak French or understanding or loving the language. And um, I feel like there's still a, a real um, lack of confidence and lack of faith in the process. Bill 101 has been uh, extraordinary in actually retaining French and maintaining the language here and, 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 and keeping it strong. What was accomplished with Bill 101 is something worth celebrating. And it also totally allowed great. Anglophones and ang- Anglophones and allophones to really um, find their place here and, and, and become and feel much more of a Quebecer than they ever were before, I believe. Because you do need to speak the language. You can't possibly feel... Uh, that you truly belong in Quebec and you can truly take advantage of what Quebec has to offer, the culture, everything that's going on around you, news, you name it, you, without speaking French. It's absurd to me that you would make the choice to live here and not speak French because you'd be missing out on far too much. So um, 
I think those, the, I think Bill 101 has managed that because we know now that every generation that comes in here, every immigrant, even if their parents don't necessarily speak the language well, because some people just don't have an affinity for languages or they're busy working 70 hour work weeks trying to s- survive, may, it may take them a little longer than six months to learn a language, you know, um, their kids are going to be speaking perfect French. They all yeah. go, they're siphoned directly into, you know, they go straight into French school. So, it's it's impossible that they won't learn French. Like the system works. We know the statistics. Like ninety four percent of Quebecers can communicate in French. Maybe some of them don't speak it perfectly. My grammar isn't perfect. I didn't go to French school. I learned it on my own when I came back here. You know, because I lived in Europe for a long time. Um, but that's okay. I can communicate. Trust me. Yeah. I can understand what's going around. I can. You know. And I in fact, one of one of the beauties of I've always thought one of the beauties of Quebec French. And I would say the same thing about uh, Mexican, Spanish, and American English. One of the beauties of these three linguistic communities, and they're not the only ones, but they're three very striking ones, that is different from, let's say, being in England, in like rural England, or being in Spain, or being uh, in France, mm-hmm. is that people are so happy that you're trying. Like in Mexico, in the States, or in Quebec, people are so happy that you're trying that it doesn't matter if your grammar is like bullshit and you've got mm-hmm. a strong accent. They're really mm-hmm. happy. I can understand you. We're good. Language yeah. is a tool. Yeah, We're using the tool. I agree tool. with you. And so bringing in this kind of like purity, it in a way, it's almost like very, it's very French, like France French. It's not very, because one of the things that I think has always distinguished the Quebecois from the French is that they haven't been kind of prissy about the language. Mm-hmm. They've had a very kind of open you know, warm-hearted attitude that, hey, you come in, you try and speak my language. I don't care if it's, whereas I remember, um, you know, for Annalise and I lived in in Paris a number of years ago for a while. And like, she found it so frustrating that people would constantly like interrupt her to critique her grammar and her pronunciation. So completely ignoring the content of what she was saying, which they could totally understand what she was saying. They were just being assholes. Yeah. Yeah. And they would like interrupt her constantly. And after a while, she just got so kind of shy that she just would let me speak all the time. Well, here the opposite happens. A lot of French Quebecers, what they'll do is like, if you're, if they see you struggling or if they even hear an accent and you're not struggling at all, they will immediately switch over to English to accommodate you, which is super, I've known, which I know it comes from a good place. I mean, it depends on who you speak to. Some some hardcore like uh, you know French uh, francophone zealots will say, "Oh, it's like a, it's 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 a, uh, an attitude of le coloniser, like it's an attitude to kind of appeal to these to appease these people or to uh, to kowtow out kowtow to English, which is nonsense." I think the in the majority of cases, I think. Uh, francophones are, are 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 nice. They're just nice human beings, and what they'll do is they'll see you struggling, and they'll immediately sw- switch over here in Montreal because they want to accommodate you. But it's frustrating for a lot of Anglophones or Allophones that I've spoken to who are trying to learn the language, but because they'll be like, "Just let me do it. Just let me. Even if I fumble, just let me speak in French. Because if you don't let me practice, how will I improve?" And on the other hand, it makes them really insecure because I've heard people. And it happens, it's happened to me a few times too. Like I'll always speak in French when I'm outside in public, when I'm ordering things. But if someone switches, immediately your mind will go to, well, how bad is my French? Or like, like why did you switch over? I have over? Haitian friends who right. had them switch into English. Oh, that's and crazy. And they don't speak English. That's crazy. And they're like, yeah. 
what? Like, so I don't have because exactly you your don't, accent? Yeah, you think that's I'm the thing. Like, if like, you don't have the Quebecois accent, immediately people will assume that you don't speak French or you don't speak it well enough, which is, there's just these really interesting, bizarre dynamics that take place. And I don't necessarily mind dynamics that come from a good place, like come from a, a desire to help a, another person or whatever. Some of these are just funny things that happen when you have, like, multiple languages and people from different places coming together like a city, like Montreal is, right? Um, it's, the, it's the negative stuff that really gets to me and this perception that Anglophones don't like the language or don't make the effort to, to speak the language, which is nonsense because I live in the city and I walk an immense amount. Like I, I walk around the city everywhere. Same here. <laughs> and I, because I'm a writer, like I'm always paying attention to people talking like I eavesdrop I don't do it necessarily on purpose all the time but I, I like to listen to what people are saying or to you know I'm observing and it's it's totally well I saw that just when you walked into the studio yes, you yes. heard the old guys speaking Greek you, and you immediately when it started speaking and I to started them. speaking Greek so to them sweet. yeah like, yeah oh yeah like, because I love it I mean he was an old he was a little old papu so I had to speak to him in, in, in Greek right I might yeah. go have coffee with him after we're done um but uh but no I mean I think what we have here is just amazing. We have this amazing city where so many cultures and so many languages come together. And, 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 and I love living in French. I love the, that the city's soul and, and heart is essentially French, but that we're a multicultural city. And, and you know what? There's no point in denying that Montreal is very much English as well. You know, English Anglophones have been here for a very long time, and they're just as Quebecers as as, as Francophones. Oh, Montreal was this, a majority English speaking city in the like, 19th century. Take a look at our yeah. flag. You know what I mean? Like this notion to this desire to erase erase what Montreal is, or to erase the history of Quebec, or to to just kind of push aside other narratives to just have this one narrative that some people want to kind of, you know, make predominant is unfair, is unfair. And it's, it's not, and it's inaccurate. It's inaccurate, you know, like we're so much more than just that. And it's okay to be all of these things. Yeah. I I, want to just loop back to something you said, because I thought it was, it's, it's another example of this sort of the big hearted nature of this book and the, the empathy and everything is when you talk about, you know, uh, the question, you know, where are you from? And I really liked, you You had a very like light touch in the way you dealt with that. So you say that, you know, yes, sometimes um, it's not always coming from a bad place. Sometimes mm. when somebody asks you that, because I know that really, really bugged me mm. like crazy for years. In fact, I wrote a whole poem once called From Here. And the poem <laughs> begins with, if you ask me again where I'm from for another goddamn right. time, I'll tell you I'm from here. Yeah. I'm from Montreal. Like, And it's a whole long thing mm-hmm. where I just try and establish that I'm from here. And right. what the fuck? You know, stop like asking me this question. So I understand that feeling of it gets really annoying when you're asked. And especially like my Mohawk friends and Haitian friends, like they're like, yeah, you know, really frustrated being asked that their whole lives. Yeah, it's it's kind of hilarious but you just say for that an, some, someone, an indigenous person, to be asked I know. that. Yeah, it's I know. really, really like. But you say, you know, sometimes it's just from a genuine place of curiosity, yeah. and nice. Yeah. But other times, it's from it, it's basically saying you're not from here, you don't belong here. Where are you from? Yeah. And that as an allophone, you become like acutely aware of of sort of guessing like which place it's coming from by yeah. the tone and by the you know various other kinds the circ- of it's circumstantial yeah for sure i mean i feel that just 
just getting upset at the question just you know isn't isn't necessarily worth it but i do feel over the years i've become good at kind of deciphering where it's coming from right i think i think it can be a question where you, where uh, m- not necessarily malicious but the other person is kind of Othering you, really, for lack of a better word. I mean, I wrote a book on it. Uh, mm-hmm. Othering you and uh, uh, making this very quick assumption based on what you look like or or how you speak or your name, immediately othering you and assuming that you're not a real, in quotes, Quebecer or you're not really from here or you haven't been here for a long time. And I quote, you know, like pe- members of the black community who have been here, you know, seven, eight generations and are still being asked that question as if a black Canadian doesn't exist somehow. Um, and... But I also do believe that sometimes people just ask that question out of genuine interest. You know, like someone, it doesn't mean, they don't mean anything by it. Um, Not everyone. And I I also, I like to practice empathy. Like maybe some of us have been spending an an inordinate amount of time kind of debating these issues or identity politics and um and being very sensitive to, you know, or being accused of being woke, you know, because we want to be like super careful about how we address people and how, you know, how we, what words we use and what words we don't use. But it doesn't mean that every single person you encounter has spent that amount of time uh, pondering these questions or thinking about them or analyzing them to that degree, right? So maybe they're just unaware. A lot of people might be completely unaware of how frustrating or how offensive that question could be under certain circumstances, and they really don't mean anything by it, you know? So I do feel that I like meeting people halfway, you know? I think some people are just asking it out of genuine interest, you know? Oh, you look different than the majority, or you sound different. Where are you, you know, what are your cultural markers? Maybe it doesn't necessarily mean anything by it. But I have been, yeah, I, I do believe that at this point in my life, I'm pretty, you know, I'm good. Pretty I, sure I, where I, it's yeah, coming Yeah, from. where it's coming yeah. from. And I don't necessarily tolerate it when it, yeah. you know, there's, there's comes not, from a bad place. There's not one uh, sort of hot button issue that you don't, that you shy away from in this book. But I, I tried as much as possible, uh, right, it, to... Uh, but I wanted to bring up this. This is a passage from your book about uh, religion, which I just thought was absolutely brilliant. And I wanted you to sort of talk about it a bit. So um, today, Quebec's religion is anti-religion. People seek to eradicate any display of excessive belief with dogma-like conviction, convinced that any religious adherence is fanaticism and dangerous. Where once this included the church, today, Quebec's aversion to religion is limited to religions beyond the Catholic faith. Since Catholicism is now respected as part of the province's heritage, its patrimon, only Muslim, Sikh, and Jewish Quebecers are required to sacrifice the visible symbols of their faith as per Bill 21. Notably, this policy only pertains to government bodies and public schools. Private schools can continue as they please, even though they receive government subsidies. To claim that public displays of religion don't have a place here is a lie. Religion is everywhere from the one. <laughs> I, I couldn't. I, I know it's hard not religion to laugh. Religion is everywhere right? from the one hundred and thirty-one meter high illuminated cross staring down at us from Mount Royal to the bells from the Roman Catholic Church around the corner to the crucifixes in hospitals and courthouses to saints' names for every second street and school. French Quebecers have such a negative have such negative connotations of organized religion, thanks to their experience of the Roman Catholic Church that they have a hard time understanding that someone can have a willing, healthy, and beneficial relationship with faith. 
French Quebecers' trauma, for lack of a better word, manifests itself as extreme distrust of religion and a bizarre insistence that not being exposed to public displays of other religions in the public sphere is somehow a right. The irony, of course, is that this demand is made while symbols of Christianity are pervasive, prioritized, and protected. I mean, that's just fantastic. So, I mean, where where does this come from for our listeners who are... Um, I understand why an atheist would be so appreciative <laughs> of religion. <laughs> uh, well, I mean, it comes again from the, the, the way I try to live my life. I mean, I am an atheist, and anyone who knows me uh, well knows that I've been an atheist pretty much since I was like six or seven years old. I don't believe in God. I make no excuses for that. I've never felt the pull of religion in any way. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, but for me... I also believe that it's a person's right to be able to, you know, like if you believe and if you are, uh, you know, you have faith in a God, whatever, whoever that God happens to be, you know, more power to you. That's fine. As long as it doesn't impact on my life and on people, other people's lives, it's cool. Um, and, and I also have, you know, I'm open enough to the concept to understand that a lot of people gain a lot of comfort and a lot of support from uh, religion and from having a faith and being part of that community, right? I mean, who am I to necessarily judge that? Um, but I mean, a lot of the the... the the, the talk around religion for me was important to point out because, again, anyone who reads me, who reads my columns uh, or who has read my columns in the last few years knows that I'm, um, uh, you know, um, I'm a, I hate, for lack of a better word, I really like hate Bill 21. I, I believe that Bill 21 is a disaster, disaster of legislation. I think it is – extremely counterproductive to social cohesion and infringes on minority rights. I think it's detrimental to so many people's lives. It has destroyed careers. It has made people feel unwelcome, um, unvalued, and people who left. I mean, I know many women who wear the hijab, who um, perfectly capable, qualified teachers. We lost good people that we desperately needed who left the province and have moved on with their lives elsewhere. And the rest of Canada, you know, other provinces gained them um, because they did not want the government to tell them how to live their lives, you know. And, mm-hmm. and um, it doesn't even achieve what they what they nothing. think it's going to achieve because, you know, I remember after I read your, your piece about that, you know, a couple of years ago, I was thinking back to growing up here and the only time I remember, and I remember it very clearly because it shocked me and I actually said something to my mom when I came home from school. I had a teacher. He was my geography teacher. And he was like a born-again Christian, like a really like evangelical Christian. And he would bring up like God stuff often in class. And it didn't have any place in a secular, you know, Protestant right. school board. Well, Protestant. Mm-hmm. But uh, it didn't have any place like in the school. But I remember it was like Good Friday or something like that. And he told the whole class, you know, whatever you have planned, I don't care. Put on something nice and just go to services because Jesus died for your sins. And (laughs) to the whole class, this mixed class with like, you know, Greek Orthodox kids sitting here. and like (laughs) Greek Orthodox kid was like, it's not my Easter probably. And and they're all like, what the fuck? And I remember going back and he had no visible symbols on him. Yeah. Now, I also had a calculus teacher at Dawson College when I was there who was like very devout um, 
Jew. He was actually from Ireland. So he had like this amazing, beautiful Irish accent. But he wore like the kippa, mm. and he was very clearly like you know somebody who took his Judaism very seriously. He never mentioned anything, yeah, ever, ever, ever about Judaism. He wasn't trying to convert anybody. So even like if if their idea is that we want secular institutions, and the way that we safeguard secular institutions is by not having any. That didn't protect me and my friends from getting like proselytized by this, you know, this white guy right. who wasn't wearing any. He didn't wear a cross or anything, but he really let us know what his convictions what his were, and he was, pushed yeah. them on mm-hmm. us all the time. Mm-hmm. No, I mean, I think it's a very simplistic, uh, a very simplistic legislation that is meant to appease, you know, people who are unfortunately unfamiliar with other religions and don't and, and just are suspicious of them and just think that if we don't, you know, um, or, or people who don't necessarily understand what secularism is, secularism is, you know, the state doesn't get to impose or to discriminate against legisl- uh, against religion. It doesn't mean that the state gets to impose non-religion in this kind of way, and it definitely doesn't get to decide what people can or cannot wear while they're working, you know, whether they're um, – it's, it's, it's – I don't it, – it has accomplished nothing other than marginalize, you know, religious minorities. It's uh, – I, I do believe I'm convinced that, you know, 50 years from now we'll be looking at this legislation as something that it won't – I don't believe it will stick around for, you know, ever. I, I do believe at some point it will be removed. But I uh, – I think 50 years from now, we'll be looking at it the way we look at legislation 50 years ago that was meant to marginalize other, you know, ethnic communities or religious communities. And it won't be a good, you know, a bright spot in Quebec history. I think it's just extremely I, I negative. really hope you're right. And I definitely, you know, once again, like if we had a Wayback Machine, I when I was, you know, in the in the 80s, not well, in the 90s and up until maybe like the early 2000s, like... I definitely believed that in a, in a reflexive, just like automatic way, I believed that history was progressive and everything was moving towards, you know, the Berlin Wall came down, that I thought there's going to be like democracy in China, there's going to be gay pride parades in Saudi Arabia. That we never move There's backwards. going to be, that everything is just mm. moving towards a kind of a liberal humanist future. Doesn't I really, look- really believed that. And then um, September Definitely. 11th happened. Yeah. And suddenly, I, I remember waking up on September 12th I was living in Baltimore at the time, and somebody had scrawled "Kill all Arabs" like across oh, the, wow. the sh- street. And I remember, like, just turning to Annalisa and I said, "We need to get the fuck out of this country. This is not going to be yeah. good. This is not going to be good." And we planned to to leave. We we moved up here not very long after that. But it was, uh, and since then, I don't, I I don't have like I wish I still did. But I don't have that that faith anymore that things are – that we're going to be looking back in 50 years and be like, oh, that was like – what were we smoking that day? Like like I actually – if you look at like the direction that a lot of countries are going in, it's going towards um, – Towards tribalism, towards ethnic nationalism. Yeah, but I think everything moves in waves, and I do believe that at some point, you know, I think I think I agree with you that I, I believe things might get worse before they get better, but I do believe that things will get better at some point. You think you know, that's history that's, kind of ebbs and flows? Yeah, I do believe that. Maybe you know, maybe I'm an optimist, or maybe I'm naive. I don't know, or maybe I just need to believe that. Um, but what do you think? I mean, you sort of you you mentioned this in passing a couple times in the book, but. What do you think if, let's say, worst case scenario, if things continue to go 
downhill. And I, you know, when I had our our mayor, Valerie Plante, when I had her on the podcast, I asked her this question. And of course, she kind of like was delicate about like sidestepping it. But um, if things continue in the like CAQ like direction for a while, do you think maybe at some point Montreal might have to consider like applying for some city state status so that it, so that Montreal has more because right now. I mean, you know this, you know, better than I do, I'm sure. But, like, Montreal right now is the economic engine of Quebec. Very much we so. We provide the vast majority of the taxes that make Quebec run. We are, we run Quebec. Like, without, the lights go off, right, if, if Montreal's gone. But we get treated like garbage, like, in every way. I mean, we have, we're the, as you put it, the landing, the landing pad for new immigrants. Mm-hmm. Uh, the vast majority of new businesses are started here it's the it's it's what makes Quebec like relevant in many ways, and maybe if Montreal had a little bit more control over its purse strings and over its immigration policy and over its language policy, that maybe that um, do you see that as like a potential solution, or I do you think it's a dead end? Yeah, no, I'm not. I'm not convinced that that is really a solution. I, I listen. I. I don't necessarily know. I'm not an expert in that area either. I don't believe that that will happen. And I do believe that there are amazing things happening outside of Montreal that are also contributing to Quebec in so many ways. So I don't think that it's necessarily just Montreal versus the rest of Quebec. I wish people, I I wish politicians would stop playing that game and dividing the two because I don't think, because it's kind of forcing people to feel that way or feel territorial about Montreal when in reality, you know, Montreal, while very different from the rest of Quebec, is still very much a part of Quebec. You know, I don't think that we necessarily need separate status per se. I think, I think, what we need is different politicians who who can explain to the rest of Quebec the importance of this city, uh, of this metropolis, and the people in it, and to explain or to 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 kind of. Um, communicate the, the the contributions of these newcomers and of immigrants because I feel like right now the rhetoric is such with this government that if you don't necessarily know much about the issue, you know, the average person who's not paying tons of, of, of attention to immigrant issues and how immigrants integrate and what the resources are there and the tools and what's lacking, what's not lacking, what the challenges are, it's very easy to be swayed by some of these dumb comments, right? These just totally destructive comments where you've got, you know, ministers and, 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 and our own premier saying nonsense things about uh, immigrants and how they integrate or whether they integrate or speak the language. So what we need are better politicians. We need people that can actually come in and have a long-term vision for Quebec, not just how can I win the next election, Um that wants that communicates the importance of this metropolis and the people in it and how much immigrants contribute and how much we can all kind of work together. And these immigrants, I think there should be better efforts for immigrants to actually not just stay in Montreal, but to be moving out to there's tons of opportunities outside of Montreal, right? For a lot of new immigrants. Oh, yeah. Vaudreuil is the fastest growing. Like, Vaudreuil. I'm not even thinking about yeah. Vaudreuil when I'm talking about Les Régions. Come yeah. on now. I'm talking about, you know, like you look at, um, if you look at manufacturers and the agricultural sector and all of these places, um, 
there are tons of places in the rest of uh, rest of Quebec in Abitibi and 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 you know Gaspésie that are in desperate need of immigrants. And if you make it a welcoming place where people can feel welcome and feel like they won't be ostracized or marginalized or made to feel like they don't belong, trust me, newcomers just want an opportunity to build a new life, right? And they don't necessarily have an attachment to Montreal. What's the reason that most people stay here? Or it's because they feel more comfortable. It's because they feel this diversity allows them to feel that they belong as well, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and they might have closer contact with their commun- their ethnic, their specific community necessarily. But if you instill this openness and you communicate to people that don't necessarily know much about immigrants that they can also – that you allow them to understand that this is an opportunity and not a challenge and not a threat, not a menace. Um, then you provide you 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 create the groundwork. You know you build the 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 the, the setup for for these people to be able to come to the areas where they're really needed and build the life for themselves. And then with time, these these preconceived notions of how people behave or how they act or whether they can integrate or not, um, they, they, they decrease. And, and how they decrease is like with just organic contact between people, right? So this fear of the other becomes less pronounced because then you are living in a community that is becoming much more diverse. And that will happen. And that's why I feel hopeful because I feel that the demographics won't re- won't allow for identity politics to stay around for long. I think they are there and I think there are very easy buttons to be pushed right now, but the the reality of what is needed in Quebec won't allow for that to happen for too long. I hope I really hope so because I mean I I mean this is a very dark reflection, but I look at, you know, the climate predictions and stuff like that. We're going to have you know, anywhere from two to 300 million climate refugees, yep. you know, in the next 10 to 15 years. The United States looks like dangerously close to descending into civil mm. war. Yeah. Um, so there's these various factors, which means that there's going to be millions of fascism. There's going to the be yeah. like millions of mm-hmm. really amazing immigrants who are looking for a new home that's far above sea level. And guess what? We have it. We're far enough north. We're far enough away from the oceans to make it a, like a place that's not going to really be messed up by climate change, not not as bad as other places. And whoever, whatever country is is welcoming to all these, like, these immigrants is going to boom, is going to be incredibly, incredibly vibrant and successful, just like the countries that accepted all immigrants after World War II, the ones that were good at it, they boomed like crazy. And well, I want us to yeah. be that kind of welcome, I mean, But that's place. what Canada has been doing, I mean, actively in the last few years, actively really increasing its immigration, right? Like I mean, the Trudeau government, now, yeah, uh, more than that, I believe. I mean, I'm not quite three, sure what the numbers are, yeah, but, it's a lot. but the Trudeau administration, the, the, yeah, I think it is. Uh, yeah. The Trudeau administration has really actively been increasing immigration because they know they, the, the country knows that it needs more people. We There's a labor shortages all across the country, right? This is definitely not a Quebec issue. Um, and what have we been doing? We've been decreasing. The CAC actually reduced, you know, decreased immigration. While the, we've, the rest of the country is actively increasing, we're decreasing. And what he's done to offset it, because like I said, ideology is no... 
um, is no match for reality. Um, he has been forced to increase, radically increase the numbers of temporary workers. So he can appease his base and say, oh, well, I haven't increased immigration. But at the same time, yeah, we have. We've accepted tons of people that are coming in. But these people, these temporary workers are coming in under the shittiest of conditions because a lot of them are not protected by any rights. They don't necessarily have resources to, uh, you know, they don't have access to French class lessons. Like the, the, the things that we pretend that we care for, we're pushing aside just to appease, you know, a, a certain group that basically doesn't want more immigration. Mm-hmm. And I think for the majority of Quebecers, because I do believe it's a small vocal minority, I think the majority of Quebecers are open, kind, you know, people who I think if they were simply made aware and politicians without an agenda were able to just communicate how important immigration is and how important, how vital it is for our economy to have more people to, to you know, to increase those numbers um, and to be more open to them coming to, uh, you know, areas outside of uh, Montreal, uh, I think they would be open to it. I think a lot of uh, the tone is set by your politics, right? It, this tone is set by your politicians. And unfortunately, the government that we have in place right now is setting a horrible tone. Mm-hmm. I totally, I totally agree. Is there just, I, I often like to finish off with this, is there a particular uh, passage that, that you especially like that you would like to read to our oh, listeners? Oh, God, now you're throwing me under the bus. I mean, uh, I, mean, I, mean I, I have so many that I like for I your mean, book. I mean, I, I wrote the books. So obviously, I like them all if they made it in there. But <laughs> I mean, um, I don't know a particular one. Hard to say. Well, here's here's while All you're right. looking. While you're looking, here's one passage I absolutely love. Okay. It's the one that you have after that beautiful part in Halifax. So like as a Quebecer, I understand French insecurities about language and culture in a way that many allophones and English speakers in the rest of Canada cannot. I have deep respect for the aspirations of a people who want to preserve and protect what defines them. During that trip uh, to to Halifax, I was proud of my Canadian identity and of everything my parents and all immigrants were able to accomplish. But my empathy was not limited to my own Greek ancestors. Um, I was equally disturbed to witness landmarks reminding me of the history of British colonial domination of the French-speaking population in Canada. Some people have a hard time understanding that multiple loyalties can exist within allophones. They insist we take sides. They are convinced we already have. They say they can tell where our loyalties lie by what language we speak or by our last names. I can be an allophone Quebecer who supports immigration, believes in the benefits of multiculturalism or even federalism, and also understands and respects Francophone efforts for more self-determination and self-preservation. I can support Bill 101 while simultaneously not seeing Montreal's multilingualism as a threat to the survival of French. I can believe in the positive elements of this country while still calling out Canadian exceptionalism and Quebec bashing. This takes nothing away from my multiple identities. This is such great writing. Uh, This takes nothing away from my multiple identities or my love and loyalty for my country and province. Just like Francophones and Anglophones, allophones are not monolithic. To be an allophone in Quebec is to live multiple allegiances. Whether some people see it or even appreciate it, there is a plurality in most Quebecers' lives that is truly a gift. Wow. (laughs) I highly recommend all of you buy this book. 
definitely, we the others, allophones, immigrants, and belonging in Canada. Um, it's an absolutely beautiful book. Thank you, John. And thank you so much for coming on the podcast. And I, I hope you come on again when you write your next book. <laughs> <laughs> One book at a time. <laughs> All right. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Thank okay. you for having me.